Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Writer's Routine Podcast. This is where we take a look at the working day of an author in the hope that some of their success rubs off onto us. And if you want success, right, we've got a big guest on the show today. One of the UK's most loved and prolific authors, Anthony Horowitz. We talk about Alex Ryder, the teenage spy that pretty much shot him to national attention, and what he thinks that changed about his work. With Alex Ryder, for the first time, I created a real character. Not somebody who wanted to be a spy, not somebody who was a superhero, not somebody particularly clever or empowered, but just an ordinary kid. And Alex Ryder sold twice or three times as many as any book I'd ever done and then each book sort of doubled in sales until suddenly you know millions of copies were being sold around the world partly because of this discovery of a real character. Also we chat about with Sherlock Holmes and James Bond stories and what it's like working on someone else's character and we find out why for him telling stories is so alluring. I don't have rules, I don't have a certain number of words per day, I don't have a certain pen or a certain notepad or a number of hours or number of words or any of that sort of stuff. What I do is what I love which is writing and writing for me is immersion. To me, that's the that's word I've used most often in conversations like this. It is a total immersion in what I am doing. So stay there. Anthony Horowitz is on Writer's Routine next. Yes, hello. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. This is where we get help and some advice from all sorts of writers on how they create and plan their stories and then sit down and write them. Now, my name is Dan Simpson. Hello. Our guest this week, a huge one, Anthony Horowitz, someone who, as I say, in my opinion, is one of the UK's greatest living authors. Just how widely and prolifically he writes across so many different forms of storytelling really is a testament to that. Now, very quickly, before we get into the chat, if you enjoy this show, if you learn some valuable bits of advice and help for your own work, or maybe you just like the the nerdy nicheness of talking about a daily routine, well, do us a favour, make sure you subscribe to the podcast through your favourite podcast place. If that place is iTunes, leave us a review on there too. It would be fantastic. Five stars would be incredible because it really helps out. You know, we can all work together and move this show up the chart. 
Right then, let's get into it. Anthony Horowitz on Writer's Routine. And if I've done my maths right, uh, he's had 32 books published or advertised as being published anyway. I mean, I'm not completely confident about that as a final number. I'm sure there are some that are squirreled away. And I think he rewrote some early stories uh, and republished them later on. He's also written across theatre, film, TV. He's worked on Poirot, Foyle's War, Midsummer Murders. I think it definitely is, though, for his novels that he's best known. His teenage spy, Alex Ryder, threw him to national attention all across schools in the early noughties. And in this chat, we do get into the the nitty and the gritty of devising, planning and plotting an Alex Ryder story. Don't worry if you're not interested in that. If you don't really care about a a slightly grumpy 007, if you've never read one, uh, I think there's a lot in this chat for everyone. We talk about evolving characters, coming up with the perfect name for them. Also, Anthony tells us what it's like to work on someone else's character and how to do that. He immersed himself in both the world of James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. Also, one of the things I love about this chat when I was going back through it is just the brilliant mundanity of, of some of it. We find out how being a top writer isn't all glitz and and brooding thought and the romantic vision of being a creative because sometimes everybody has to let the TV repairman in. You'll find out more about that in just a sec. We start with Anthony Horowitz, though, and I'm wondering what his routine is actually like on an average working day. You've used two words that I try to avoid scrupulously in my work. The first is average and the second is routine. Uh, I try not to have an average day. I try to have a good and excellent day, in fact, uh, and try to make every day a little bit different, which is difficult because at the end of the day, all I am doing is sitting in a chair writing pretty much from morning until night. Uh, But if you want to sort of get the sort of gist of it, I would say I get up around about 6.30, maybe 7. It just depends. Again, when I wake up, it depends on when I went to bed and, and how I've slept, all the rest of it. But by and large, I don't eat breakfast. I don't do anything. I just have a bath. I go upstairs and I, get, I have a bath. I get dressed. I go upstairs uh, and uh, sit down at my at my desk. Everything in my office is very carefully geared around my work. So that the moment I arrive, it's almost like I'm getting into the cockpit of a of a plane or a spaceship or something like that. I love the fact that I, I sort of almost feel like I'm building myself in for what lies ahead. And then I start writing normally from where I left off the night before. So often I'll have got to the end of a chapter and it's the next chapter but I'm already ready for it I've thought about it in my sleep I've thought about it in my bed and I'm really very eager to get into it I tend to write with a pen not with a not with a computer the first draft I always do with pen and nib and paper and everything on my desk is sort of sorted and ready for me to, to you know in place the the correct pad the correct pen that I'm using every pen a different pen for each novel um uh the notes that I have my notebooks the reference books that I need everything is ready and set for this journey I'm about to make so I sit down, I start writing. Um, I will work until, well, whenever, really. I mean, it depends. This morning, having said that, I I got up at sort of seven, but I was out walking the dog at nine o'clock. I have a a black uh, Labrador Staffy cross, which I got from Battersea, very much part now of my working routine. I went out with him this morning for two hours from about, when was it? 9.20 till about 11.30. And in that time, what was I doing? I was walking the dog, but I was also thinking about the next sections of the Alex Ryder short story which is what I'm working on today so that walk was part of my work so had you finished writing in the morning before your walk 
Oh, no, no, I did about two hours before. I, would, I did 7 to about 9.20. Uh, what was I doing this morning? I was doing this. I'm, I'm writing at the moment an Alex Ryder short story. It's quite long, in fact. It's going to be about 20,000 words. And uh, I did about 2,000 words in the course of last night and this morning on that story. Um, then went out and thought about it. Got back from the walk and went straight back to my desk and then wrote what I'd been thinking about on the walk, uh, which took me through till about... Oh, 40 minutes ago when a television engineer turned up to mend the television, so I had to be interrupted for that. When he left, I tinked a little bit more and then came to this meeting with you. So here we are now. At what time is it? Um, quarter past two. I have a little chore to do this afternoon, which will take me until about half past three. But at half past three, I shall then have four hours more writing until half past seven. When my Greek teacher comes, I have a Greek lesson this evening. Um, this morning, I did also incidentally cheat and did half an hour of Greek vocabulary uh, sometime before I got out of bed, that was. So he will come. Uh, he will stay with me until nine o'clock. And then nine o'clock until probably 11 or midnight, I will continue to work on the Alex Ryder story. I'm going to India on Sunday, and it is my hope, though I think it's unlikely to finish it before that time, because I've got other things I need to do when I get back. Uh, and that has been today. Um, food. Um, I haven't eaten yet, but I hope to do so um, probably around about 6.45 when my wife Jill gets back from this office where we're having this talk discussion. God, having said all this, it sounded terribly boring, was it? No, it's perfect. It was so busy, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I've got a few follow-up questions on this then, because as you say, it, it's quite a scattered routine. But the point is, you use the word routine again. You see, yesterday was different and tomorrow will be different again. I do try, because writing is a sort of a repetitive process. I mean, at the end of the day, you get up, you sit down, you type, you write, you look at your work, you send it to the publisher. How do you vary that? What do you do to try and inject into that not a sense of, oh, God, here I am again doing yet another page? And the answer to that is partly the work itself, because it might be Alex Ryder's short story today, but next week it's going to be the TV adaptation of Magpie Murders. The week after that it could be my new Hawthorne novel, which I'm sort of beginning to think about already, um, uh, another murder story. So the work itself varies things, but also, you know, don't get the idea that every single day is spent 10, 12, 15 hours in the the office because as well as walking with dog I go to the theatre last night I was at network at the National Theatre uh, which was terrific and um, I'm going to India on Sunday which is sort of exciting for two weeks and that's sort of going to be a big change so it's you know the days are different is that considered then? Have you learned that along the way? You've published so many books now. Uh, how was your writing routine on the very first book that you made? For instance, I've chatted to so many authors doing this who find the best way to organise their creativity is to sit down between, I don't know, 9, 12, to, so they can force through when to flick on that switch. Your varied day, no is force, that considered? No force, no switch, no routine. It's not like that. Writing is my life, basically. So you, what you're asking me in this interview is to describe my life, my, you know, the routine of my life. And that, it would be awful if I had an answer to that question because, you know, how boring would that be? I don't have rules. I don't have a certain number of words per day. I don't have a certain pen or a certain notepad or a number of hours or number of words or any of that sort of stuff. What I do is what I love, which is writing. And... Writing for me 
is immersion. To me, that's the that's word I've used most often in conversations like this. It is a total immersion in what I am doing. So that for the time like this morning, Alex Ryder is trapped in a place called Bellhanger Abbey. I like that because it sounds like Northanger Abbey, but it isn't. And, um, uh, and he thinks it's an MI6 hospital where he's being treated for an accident, but he's slowly discovering that actually it's something else. Now, while I am writing those sequences, I am not in Clerkenwell. I am not uh, doing 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock when it's time to do the dog. I am in Bellhanger Abbey with Alex, having to imagine the electric fence that surrounds it, the lake, the croquet lawn, the fishing rods, the, uh, the security drone that buzzes around in 24 hours, uh, the um, billiard table, the TV room. And incidentally, in what I've just told you, are the clues of the amazing escape, which I know he's going to make on around about chapter 30 or 31. I'm on chapter 20 now. And uh, that is my day. A story is the correct length it's going to be. When a story arrives in my head, it's a television show, it's a film, it's a play, it's a, it's a short story, it's a radio play. It could be something that goes on, the, on, on one of those leaflets inside a Christmas cracker. I don't know, but when it arrives, it arrives in the form it's going to be. And it's not a question of saying, oh, shall I use this material for a, for a novel? or for a play, I know exactly what it is because the form, to an extent, defines the content as well as the content defining the form. So in this instance, what happened was I am writing a collection of short Alex Ryder stories for my publisher who have brought together some of the already published stories, but I felt they weren't good enough and I needed three or four more. So I began to think last year about new stories that I might write, which would be short stories. That was the beginning. Let's write an Alex Ryder short story. And ideas come into my head and they get rejected because they're too silly, they're too improbable, they're too boring, they're too whatever, or they can be too short, too long. But sometimes a story pops in that is exactly right. And I know this is right, this story, because it's got a fantastic kidnapping sequence, which I which excites me because I can see it. And it's got a great escape, which I've already sort of described to you, but I haven't, uh, which makes me smile because it's not been done before. Uh, and it's got a situation which I can describe in 5,000 words, this Bellhanger Abbey place. Uh, it's obviously a short story. Now, at the same time, in my head is a story which is nudging at me and my consciousness for next year, which is uh, Alex Ryder up against a new evil organization called Nightshade, who is basically a sort of murder for money sort of organization, but with an interesting twist a really, really interesting twist, a modern twist. And that has to be a novel. There's no question about it. I couldn't fit it into a short story. It's too rich. There's too many locations, too much ground to cover. And also, the book has arrived pretty much fully formed in my head and I know it's going to be about 80 90,000 words well let me talk to you more about this then so you you, you say that uh, that the form of a story is defined by its concept how much are you plotting out that concept before you sit down to write you were talking that you know how Alex Ryder is going to escape in chapter 31 okay, let's look at the story I'm writing at this moment Bellhanger Abbey I had the idea uh, partly because also just so you know the old Vic is talking about doing possibly Alex Ryder on the stage, and I was trying to think of an idea that could be adapted for the stage. So that automatically meant in my head that it couldn't have car chases or not too many car chases or plane chases or explosions and things like that because, you know, these things can't be done on the stage. So I began to think about locations, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if Alex woke up in a hospital? And the hospital is in the middle of the countryside, and he doesn't know where he is or how he got there. His memory has gone, and he's having analysis with a doctor who is trying to work out 
who he is and where he's come from. That's theatrical already because you can see that working on the stage. He can talk to a doctor on the stage and they can act out Alex's life, but they can do it theatrically. So it works both as a short story and as a play. I'm not concerned now in the play. It may never happen in any way. The, the adapter may not want to use my story. I'm just concerned in writing a story for my book, for my collection. And so I begin to think about the story of... Obviously, the first line is Alex opens his eyes, so we're with him. He's in bed. Where is he? Now I need to describe the room. So my beginning of this story is this, it's just this moment of the eyes opening, like the, the camera is in big close-up on Alex, and we don't know where the hell he is, nor does he. And then the door's going to open, and the first character's going to come in. Who is she? Well, it's, she is a nurse, Nurse Wendy, as she is called. Um, and she's all clucking, and how are you? And you've been in a terrible accident. Don't worry, we're going to look after you. So the next... 5, 10, 15 pages are going to be Alex getting used to this new situation of, of describing the location, the physicality, the other guards who are there, the chef, the orderly, the doctor who interviews him. And, and as I write this, I begin to see that because this story is slightly fragmented, it's going to take place over maybe five weeks, but it's only 20,000 words maximum. So it's got to be done quite shorthand. It can't be written in sort of long things. Children won't enjoy it. Psychological stuff, endless you know, discussions about his illness and his getting better and stuff. We've got to do it quickly, fast, fast. So into my head slips this idea that I'll write this story, not in chapters, but in chunks. And these are just one page long, but they're done with these little headings, not chapters, but sort of titles. And, and that makes it feel almost like a dia diagnostic type novel. It's a novel which, which you might write about a patient in a hospital. So it works really, really well. Into that now, I need to inject at least one, possibly two, really original, exciting pieces of action. These are action stories. People aren't going to read Alex Ryder for his sort of, you know, well-being and emotional state. They want to see him do amazing things. So I set up in my head on one of my walks with the dog, what is it that prevents him walking out of this hospital and um, getting help? Well, let's start with guards. That's good. Let's have an Alsatian dog. Haven't had one of those for a bit. Uh, let's give him an electric fence because that's quite fun. Touch it and you frazzle. That'll, that'll be difficult. And maybe we'll put a moat on the other side of the fence if we need it. Think about that. Surround the place by woodland so that he doesn't even know where he is. Now he could be in England, he could be in Scotland, he could be in Wales, he could be in Jamaica. He doesn't know. Uh, so that's all quite nice. And then start putting into the place, into the building, the props that he will need to escape at the end of the story, which I have done and which I've told you about. Um, and then make sure that the escape makes you smile. That's the biggest thing in my work. It can't be, you know, that he, I don't know, throws water at the fence and it short circuits or throws the dog at the fence and that short circuits it. Although that actually doesn't, as an idea, isn't so bad. But no, he's got to be something that really is special and has never, ever been done before. And which, a little voice whispers to the back of my head, we might just might be able to do in the theatre if they decide to adapt this book into a play. That's one piece of action. The other piece of action is, is how did he get there in the first place? Can I have him abducted again? You're going to kidnap Alex Ryder and put him in a hospital. Do you hit him on the head with a, with a stick? Or do you um, drug him? Do you, do you, does he get into a taxi and gas canister explodes in the back like in an old 30s film? Can I think of something that is really fun and different and just makes me smile? Oh, yes, I can, and it's in the book as well. So that's, that's what you've got there. It's, it's going to be, as I said, what, 20,000 words probably? But it's, it's, it's complete in itself. It's, sort of, it's all there. I'm going to say a word that I think you won't like, as you've mentioned my language. Um, it sounds to me... Uh, sounds is a perfectly fine word. What's wrong with that? <laughs> that there might be a form of formula 
about what you're writing. Now, bear with me for two seconds, mm-hmm. as in you were saying... Um, there needs to be a certain amount of action sequences. Oh, there's an Alsatian. He's going to come along. We've not had one of those around before. How have you developed what you know needs to be in, in an Alex Ryder story over the years? Well, you're right in the sense that I don't like formula because it sounds too um, mechanical. And what I'm doing now is retroactive. I mean, you've asked me to explain my working method, so I'm giving it to you now. But I don't sit down with a notepad and do this sort of by rote. One, the kidnap. Two, the escape. Three, the dog, etc. It's much, much more instinctive than that. And, and and it's to do with just uh, what I love. And bo- you know, I, I, the, all books, all adventure books, have a sort of a template, if you like, a sort of a, you know, a, a predicaments and, and dangers and escapes and bad guys and good guys. I work a lot on, on Ian Fleming and James Bond and the James Bond novels. They're geniuses. So they are formulaic in a way. I mean, you know, they have the, the Drax, the Goldfinger, the guy, you know, the Blofeld who's going to sit in his chair with his cat on his lap and tell you exactly what he's going to do chapters before he gets blown out of it and doesn't actually manage to do it at all. Uh, but what Fleming does so brilliantly is to completely reinvigorate and reanimate and redefine the formula with each book. In fact, actually, he also created the formula, which also makes it, you know, original to him, I think, uh, to an extent anyway. Um, So I know from my childhood reading from years and years and years ago what made me turn the page, why I loved reading. And what I loved was action. I loved escapes. I loved um, danger, secret passages, tricks, illusions. I love magic and incorporating magic tricks into my work. Moriarty uh, the novel which is on the, on, the, on the shelf behind you, is actually based 100% on a magic trick. The mechanics of that book are a magic trick. Uh, and, and, and I love doing it. I love doing things in my books that surprise you. So when Alex escapes, he takes two ordinary objects that, that I've mentioned to you and turns them into something that gets him out of there. And that, and that turns, you know, magic is transformation. So it's not formula, it's not planning it, it's more instinctive. But it's, and it's, it's listening to an inner voice that makes me excited when I get it right and makes me feel tired if it's wrong. I've got to be a better writer in recent years by knowing more about character. In my earlier work, uh, before Alex Ryder really, the characters were fairly superficial. They were fairly sort of lightly drawn, so I knew very little about them. With Alex now, especially writing the story I'm writing at the moment, which is very much one about psychiatric sort of treatment, I know them pretty well. Um, and if you look at my new books, the um, Word is Murder, for example, which is about a character called Hawthorne, one of the fascinating things about writing those books is it's a quest into his character. So it's a detective story in which the detective himself provides the main source or the main reason to investigate, not the murder. The murders are interesting and fun and they're full of clues and tricks and twists. But actually what really interests me about those books is getting to know the character of Hawthorne. And since I am the other character in the book, I am his Watson. I turn up in the book as myself. So it's me and Hawthorne. It's really a, 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 an examination of the way writers investigate characters. And talk to me about the names of your characters because there's been some beautiful ones across the Alex Ryder series. Uh, how do you come up with those? Uh, are you looking for specific almost onomatopoeic, very descriptive well, words. Let's go again to the story I'm working on at the moment, Bellhanger Abbey. Now, why did I come up with that? Because I was thinking to myself, Killington Abbey, um, or Blood Something Abbey, or, or Abbey, or Hammer Something Abbey, all words that were, to me, too childish, too obvious, too silly. 
you need to have names that are that that say something. A name is the first thing you you recognize in a character when you're introduced to somebody. Their name is often the first thing you discover about them. As with you and myself, you know today. Um, so. Names have an immediate impact, and I was in my youth very much influenced by Charles Dickens, who gave his characters extraordinary names, Gradgrind. Do you want to be taught by a teacher called Gradgrind? No, I don't think so, or Wackford Squirt. Or Scrooge is the perfect one, isn't it? Again, a name that sort of sounds this guy who screws money out of people, perhaps. I mean, it's that sort of, his words do sort of, Pecksniff is another one. You know, they're, they're all names that somehow tell you. And I used to do that with my kids' books, so, you know, my very, very earliest book there was a character called Olga Throat and you know immediately is she a good person or a bad person Olga Throat do you need to ask um, or in, in Stormbreaker Nadia Vole in Stormbreaker Mrs. Stellenbosch in, um, in Point Blank I've tended now to shy away from these slightly extreme names because they're too much children's book names and actually making names less descriptive I think is probably a better and more sensible way to go um, and I hope that the characters now of the bad guys are generally more nuanced as well. One of my favourite bad guys, General Saroff in Skeleton Key. I love the name Saroff, you see, because Saroff actually comes from sarin, which is the, a type of poison. Uh, so he's named after a poison gas. But I didn't call him that because that's silly. But Saroff is a perfectly reasonable name. Also, incidentally, quite important is a name that children can read easily. I find names in kids' books, if they've got five syllables and you have to stumble over the pronunciation, are an obstacle to reading. So the names should always be fairly accessible. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Anthony Horowitz in just a sec. First, let me very quickly remind you of all the ways that you can find the show and get in touch with Writer's Routine. Uh, We're on Twitter, as everyone is. It's at Writer's Pod. It's probably the best and the easiest way, actually, to send us a message and get a quick one back. Uh, You can keep across everything that we're doing on there as well. It is at Writer's Pod. 
Also on Instagram, we're at Writer's Routine. And you know what? I'm kind of on a, a little Insta push at the moment, doing loads on there, putting out uh, decent pictures, uh, quite a few teaser videos as well from all of our interviews on there. Uh, and there's the website where you can find all of the ways to listen to the show. You can catch up with every episode that we've done so far and you can get in touch with us. Send us a little email on there as well. It is writersroutine.com for that. And finally... Uh, you can leave me a note in the review that you are definitely going to write on the iTunes podcast store, right? If you leave your name there, I'll read it. I'll see the message that you've put and I know that you're listening and maybe I can even reply uh, with my voice on the show. I think that's a good way to do it, you know. Just get to the iTunes podcast store and get in touch on there by leaving Writer's Routine a review. Time for part two of our chat with Anthony Horowitz then, author of Alex Ryder, two Sherlock Holmes stories, one published James Bond book. If you enjoyed that, there's another on the way really soon. And we pick things up with a question that's kind of been nagging away at me, all about how much he really loves his characters. Why do you think you keep returning to, to characters and stories from the past to, to write more things for them? For instance, I, I may be wrong, but am I right in thinking... You kind of came back to Alex Ryder after yes. a little bit of a break when, when many people thought that was going to be it, the story was told, but then you came back with more. There was the, the, the Diamond Brothers, for instance. I haven't seri- gone back to them particularly. But you did the, the, the 2008 Greek Who Stole Christmas book. That was some years after. That's what You're I'm saying. very well researched. You, you, yes. return, um, you, you return back to these things. Is that through force of will? Is it because you've got a fantastic idea for these characters? Are they constantly percolating away in your mind? There's always a reason for writing a book, and the older you get and you realise you have fewer books left to write because just time is going to run out on you, the more important it is to be sure that the next book is going to be one that you really want to write. And with me, I get ideas for books that just sort of come and won't go away. Um, So uh, the new Bond novel, I wasn't going to do a second Bond novel. But then, out of nowhere, an idea for a first sentence, just the first sentence of the book, fell into my head and it just made me smile. I thought, wow, that's so great. And I had to write the whole book just to accommodate that first sentence. Um, these, the new Alex Ryder book, Never Say Die, came about for lots of reasons, really. Um, if you want the long, full story, it was this. The publishers asked me to produce, uh, asked me to pull together all the short stories that I'd ever written for Alex Ryder, which had appeared in magazines, backs of books, here and there, odd places, to produce a new volume of Alex Ryder's short stories. I did this, I found them from different sources, read them, thought they weren't good enough, began to polish them. Polishing them, I decided that actually there weren't enough of them, uh, maybe I should write some new ones. So before I knew what I was doing, I was writing Alex Ryder again. I wrote a story called Alex in Afghanistan, which like the one I'm writing now, is, is, it's 20, 30,000 words, but it's just a little, it's perfect as far as I'm concerned. I'm so pleased with that. And I just loved it, and it just reminded me that actually there was more to write about this kid. There were more gadgets, more adventures, more escapes, more bad guys. I could have more fun. Fun is what I'm all about at the end of the day. So having done that, I said to the publishers, look, I've had such a great time, I'll do another whole novel. And I wanted to do the novel for two reasons. One was, I felt that Alex at the end of Scorpio Rising was too sad. I'd left him just sad and alone and far away in San Francisco and Jack Starbright, his best friend, was dead. And he wasn't the kid that I had invented in 2000, you know, the boy of Stormbreaker. And I thought that there was something wrong about that, that I'd made a mistake and that it was right to go back and to reanimate him and to make him happy again, which is what I did in that book. 
The second reason is a more cynical one, a more commercial one, which is this, that if you leave 10 books on the shelf and you don't add to them, and you don't continue with the series, they will inevitably fade away and, and die and go. And I couldn't bear that to happen. I just, you know, it's not, it's not financial. It's just that, you know, all that work and all that investment in that character, just to let it be, it, it went against the grain. So I wrote Never Say Die. I'm going to write Nightshade. There's this collection of short stories. And after that, we'll see. I'm not making any, you know, guesses now as to whether I'll do more or not do more. But there's definitely the Nightshade book and the short stories. You, you mentioned your Bond books earlier on. Uh, you've also worked with, with Sherlock Holmes, uh, so The House of Silk and Moriarty too. What's it like writing stories for someone else's character? The thing about writing those books is not so much that it's not my character. It's, it's not my style or my world. I mean, you know, when I'm writing Doyle or Fleming, the first thing I have to do is absorb how they write. Because my job, I think, is not to take their character and put him into my own books, but it is to put me into their books and to hide and to be invisible in their books so that when you read Trigger Mortis or, 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 or the new one, or, or if you're reading um, The House of Silk in particular, you shouldn't get the sense that this is somebody else intruding on Doyle's territory. It's almost sort of the book that Doyle wrote but was only discovered in 2015 or 16 or whenever it was published. Um, so what, it, what, the, what, it, what I'm doing in those things is, first of all, to immerse myself and to hide. The second thing I'm doing is to obey all their rules, to do nothing that they didn't do. So a good example... No girlfriend for Sherlock Holmes because there was only Irene Adler. We know that from a scandal in Bohemia. He said it, and so you don't change it. You don't break faith with the um, author or his intentions. Other than that, it's, uh, the other thing is, is to raise my game because Doyle and Fleming were both better writers than me, much better writers than me. Doyle in particular. I mean, he's a master of Gothic romance, and uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant um almost a poetical writer. I mean, you think about how many writers are there who, have encap who encapsulate an entire age. If you think about late Victoriana in this country, in Britain, you go straight to Doyle. And if I say to you four or five words, fog, cobblestones, growler, Stradivarius, you're there already, four words, and you go into that world. That's genius. And therefore, to try and write in their style means having to work extremely hard to raise my game to be almost as good as them. You're talking a bit about tone and voice then, and immersing yourself yes. into Fleming's, but into then, Doyle's as well. the next part of it comes, the character is all part of that. So it's not a question of thinking to myself, oh, what am I going to do with this man who smokes a pipe and wears a hat, a deerstalker hat? Actually, he never does in the book. It's one of the misconceptions we have about him. Um, and, and, you know, a character called Watson, etc., and Moriarty and, 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 and all the rest of them, Mrs. Hudson. It's, it's not moving them like chess pieces on a board it is it's more moving into 221b baker street sitting in an armchair and waiting for them to come into the room that's how i did again it goes back to that idea of immersion i personally think that the tone and the voice that you use in your work changes depending on what you do it's not just those but also if you were to read i don't know a standalone novel like granny for instance it's quite kind of childish but also there's an element of danger there as well in not just the story but in the way you write it. Also, if you were to um, Alex Ryder, for instance, how much do you think about the voice and the tone that you're speaking to an audience member through your work? There have been various phases to my work. All the books leading up to Alex Ryder were of a type. 
uh, the children's books, of which Granny was one, Gruesome Grange one and two, um, the Diamond Brothers, uh, etc. There were lots of them. And then I wrote a book called The Switch. And The Switch is the first children's book I wrote that builds a bridge to the next phase of my writing. And in the second phase, I've, I stopped thinking about my books as children's books. Nick Diamond, or the kid in Granny, whoever is, Joe, whose name is Warden, and I think his father is Gordon Warden, and his mother is Maud N. Warden. So you're already sort of giggling, and it's already silly, and it's already a children's book. And I sort of did that for quite a lot of books. Gruesome Grange. I mean, we talked earlier about Bell Hanger Abbey is a good name for, a, for a, uh, an abbey, I think. But Gruesome Grange is definitely a bad name for a school because it's already trying too hard. Gruesome Gruesome. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it's not what I would do now. It was fine then. So then I did um, The Switch. And The Switch taught me that a character, Tad, in the book, is my first character in a children's book who actually changes between page one and the last page. He starts off as a rich, spoiled kid who's a bit of a sort of a loser, really, but by the end of the book, he's a hero, and he's learnt about life, and he's become um, a, a, a better person. Whereas the bad boy in that was a kid called, I think, Fred Snobby, his name is, um, who starts life as a grotesque bad kid. By the end of it, he's quite sweet, and the two of them become friends. That journey taught me how to write kids' books. And with Alex Ryder, for the first time, I created a real character. Not somebody who wanted to be a spy, not somebody who was a superhero, not somebody particularly clever or empowered, but just an ordinary kid who, unbeknownst to him, has got these latent abilities to become the greatest spy in the world. And Alex Ryder sold twice or three times as many as any book I'd ever done and then each book sort of doubled in sales until suddenly you know millions of copies were being sold around the world partly because of this discovery of a real character since the Alex Ryder books I've now moved into the later stages of my career which are now I'm much more an adult writer I'm writing much less for kids and I'm much more interested in doing sort of murder mysteries and sort of rather peculiar metafiction of one sort or another and I think that I have become better as a writer now largely because I am much more interested in character than I used to be. Yes, I still like mystery and murder and I still like action and adventure and I like magic and clues and secret passages. None of that's ever gone. But I have got a much, much greater interest and understanding perhaps of, of the characters in my book. It's nice if words meet for the first time in the description of something like friends coming into a, a party which is your book. God, doesn't that sound pretentious? But it's sort of how I feel a bit. I like to try and find some way of saying something that hasn't been said before. So if you're describing, I don't know, snow, um, and there's a description of snow in one of the, one of the books, I can't remember, um, which I think is described as uh, he felt like a single letter in a sheet of paper or something of that sort. It's not, that, that's not particularly good, but it was something like that. But it just makes you think of snow in a different way. So you don't use the word crisp. You don't say that it's cold. You don't say that it's flat or that it sparkles or that it's all of those words because all those words have been used about snow lots and lots of times. So you go through your head or as you get older, you go through a thesaurus trying to find, well, actually I try to avoid the thesaurus. It's too mechanical. But, but you try and find 
find that the word that will come onto the page and will give you a little smile about snow or whatever it is you're describing. And sometimes, uh, people's faces, you know, how many different ways are there to describe somebody's face? You know, they all have two eyes, or most of them do, and a nose down the middle and a mouth, and either a beard or not a beard, and, and, and hair like yours. God, I learned the Greek for unruly hair today, but I've forgotten what it is now. But anyway, um, you, you, so you try to find a way to describe someone's face that will be memorable, so that when you meet that person again, you sort of know what they look like, but also what is, that is ordinary, because again, you don't want to say they've got a gigantic scar down the middle of their cheek or something, because that's a bit hoaxy, isn't it? Uh, but, but, uh, but it's fresh. And, uh, you know, again, I was describing, I was describing the nurse in the, in the new story that night, and I came up with a formulation, which I had never used before, about her being old and young at the same time. I was saying, trying to get her age. It was hard to say. There were elements of her face that were both old and young at the same time. And I thought, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way to describe somebody. It hasn't been done before, or probably has, but not by me. Talk to me about the very first story you ever sat down to write. Do you remember it? Yes, I do remember it, but I'm not sure I do want to talk about it in a funny way, because it's... Um, it was a very, very long time ago. I mean, you know, the first story I ever wrote, if you really want the truth, I was nine years old. It was called The Thing That Never Happened, and it was the story of Guy Fawkes. Quite why I wrote that, I don't know, but um, but I took it terribly seriously. It was a play, not a book, and I and I, I spent a lot of time writing it, and it's in, it always interests me that the, the impulse to write should have been, for me, so natural, so ingrained, a bit like the sort of impulse to to breathe to, to, or, to, or to eat or to defecate. I mean, it was sort of, you know, it was just, it was, it was an inherent part of me. And I always get, my heckles always rise when somebody says to me, I want, I'm thinking about writing or I want to be a writer. Even again, at the beginning of this conversation, you said that this was for aspirant writers. I don't think such a thing exists. You write if you are going to write because you can't stop yourself writing. Uh, and so when people come and visit me, which they do quite often, and, and my assistant here will sits in with meetings with me uh, because these days it is wiser never to meet anybody on your own. Um, and she, she will tell you the moment I get crosses when they talk to me about what they're thinking of writing. Because why are they thinking about it? They should have written it. A last question, and it's going to require you to be a bit self-reflective and analytical, if that's okay. I haven't been so far. No, <laughs> even more so. Um, so I'd say you're one of the nation's most loved authors, sold plenty of copies of all of your books. Why is it that your style of writing is so populist, do you think? Why does it capture the attention and the imagination of so many people all around the world? I would, first of all, I'd question, I, would, I would question your f- first statement. I, I don't feel that I am the most loved author or a loved author. I am a hard-working author and I am a very prolific author. But I, as to sort of my place in sort of the world it's something that that i don't know i'm in a room i'm sort of stuck there so i don't know about that the second thing is is your use of the word populist which is an interesting word because is it an insult is it an offensive it's word? not an offensive word at all but i know that it, i know that it can be i don't mean it like that i think um being populist with art is is one of the hardest thing to do to to to, to do it on the scale that you have to be so many books deep in Alex Ryder to write so prolifically across the telly think, to be asked to do think, to write James uh, Bond. Okay, let me try and answer your question. I think that I've always wanted to be read. Um, there's a wonderful poem by Stevie Smith, which is sort of my mantra, and I'm going to forget its name now. It's the 
angry monk, the unhappy monk, or just the monk. I'll find it for you afterwards. And it's it's sort of it's it's should it's sort of pinned above my desk. If I wasn't in the middle of a book at the moment, I'd probably remember its title. But it's about a monk who spends his whole life trying to write the perfect document or the perfect book, and it's finally perfect, so he buries it in its perfection and. Nobody reads it because the rain gets in and it moulders away and that's the end of it. And that's exactly what I've always wanted to avoid. To me, a writing, when you write, you strike a match. Every word strikes a match. And I am at heart an arsonist. It's not enough to me to burn a, a bonfire or, or a building or even a city. I want to set fire to the world. And that's what I've always wanted. Story, which is what I mainly deal in, is this wonderful energizing, important, unifying force. And it can bring people together like almost nothing else in this world can. Story, how we got to where we are, who we are, how we relate to each other. History, the world of the, the story of every object in this room we're sitting in now, where this table came from, how this room was built. It's all story. And to me, when I write story, it's not enough that, that my wife and my children read it and like it. I want everybody to like it and read it. And so I'm populist and I choose my subjects carefully and I write books that I think people will enjoy because it seems to me that that is what I'm meant to be doing. It's what I sort of always wanted to do. And I didn't, there was no plan about it. It's just, it's just, it's just what, I, what I do. And if I were to sit down and try to write a great novel, God help me, or a novel that sort of, you know, was, was on a par with some of the masters, Dickens or, or more modern writers. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ishiguro or McEwan or, uh, you know, many, many other writers. I would fall flat on my face. I would, it would be no good. I do what I'm meant to do, what I've always done and what I'm good at. And I, if it's populist, that's what it is. That is it then for our chat with Anthony Horowitz. The poem, by the way, uh, he talked about at the end, you know, the monk who buries the greatest book that will ever be written in the sand and it withers and wilts and moulds away. Uh, it's by Stevie Smith and it's called The Weak Monk. Now, huge thanks, obviously, to Anthony for sparing an hour of his incredibly busy day to have a chat with me. I still can't believe it, really. One of the most delightful and energetic 60 minutes of my life, bar none. And also a huge thank you to you, uh, for giving us a listen. We've got links to all of Anthony's stuff on our website, it is writersroutine.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please make sure that you subscribe and leave us a review if you are subscribing on the iTunes podcast store. And you can give us a follow on Twitter and you can get in touch on the website writersroutine.com. Now, next week, make sure you come back. We're chatting to a brilliantly intense author, AJ Finn. He's just published the book The Woman in the Window. And it's due to be the biggest psychological thriller since Gone Girl. He's already sold the film rights. It's going to be everywhere. And you can get it here first next week on Writer's Routine. So I'll see you in a few days' time then with AJ Finn on next week's Writer's Routine. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.